We've been in our series in 1 John. How can I be sure? Hopefully you can open up a Bible or turn on a gadget and get to 1 John. And we'll have most of it on the screen today because we got, uh, we're going to go through verse by verse today. We've been going through this book because really John gives us a test. It's a test to see, am I in the faith? We've talked about things like God wants you to know. John says, I write these things so that you may know that you're a child of God. But then there are certain things that children of God display. We don't do it in order to get saved, but if we are saved, we do these things because it's who we are. Experiencing a relationship with God where he guides and directs. Uh, just, just Friday, I was in a car driving down the highway and uh, somebody came to mind. And I said, you know what? I need to call that person. I called that person, started a conversation, and that person said, boy, you called at just the right time. We had a godly talk, an encouragement, and I was reminded, God does prompt us. And we ought to have that relationship where he does guide and direct we need to have a certain relationship with sin we talked about. John lets us know that as, as children of God, we, we are constantly being uh, made new in the Spirit because we have a new life. Our old life is crucified with Christ, dead and buried and gone, and a new life is here. And so we let God work on us and transform us. The process of sanctification where we're learning to stop being selfish and to stop gratifying the, the desires of the flesh. And then we come to today's message and it's another test. And you might be saying, enough of these tests. We walk away saying, I'm failing. I feel like I'm failing every week. I, I heard about a, a class, a college class, ornithology, the study of birds. And people having to go through this class hated this professor. He was unfair. It was mean. His class was difficult. They had a, a, a test. The professor stood up and told them, at the end of 40 days, I'm going to give you a test, and it's most of your grade. You better be ready. Everybody worried about it. They prepared as best they could for this test. They get there on the day of the test, and the professor comes and has five tables on the, the platform with five cages with a covering over them. But you could see the legs of birds at the bottom of each cage. That's all you could see is their legs, their, their feet. The professor stood up and said, you must tell me the identity of each of these five birds by just looking at their feet. Everybody was upset. They'd studied, they'd, but they had no idea to be prepared for that. And they were sweating and nervous and scared about failing this class. And everyone started to panic a little bit when one student stood up and he said, this is ridiculous. This is the craziest test I've ever seen, and you're the worst professor I've ever had. I'm out of here. I quit. And he turned and started walking out the, class, out the, the, the door. The professor said, hey, excuse me, who are you? I demand to know who you are right now. At that, the young man turned and said, you tell me, professor. You tell me. I love that story. Sometimes we feel that tests aren't fair, and there's no that way that we could pass one. How could we be prepared for it? Well, you need to know that these tests aren't games or tricks where John is saying you've got to jump through these hoops. This is simply a, a reality check of saying if this is real in you, then these markers will be true of you. I believe that every child of God has birthmarks. We're marked by who God is in our lives. So we come to today, 1 John, and we're going to be in chapter 4. 
The big idea, you ask? Your love of others gives you surety. See, we learn that we got to have a relationship with God. We learn that there's a certain relationship with sin. And then we learn that we become people of love. And that's one way that we can know that God has changed us. So let's go ahead and, and take a look at the Scripture. And I didn't bring that page, so I'm going to have to read it off the screen with you today. Starts with the key verse, 1 John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And it's not going to be on that screen, is it? Is it on the side screens? Thank you. I appreciate you helping me out here today. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. We're going to walk through this passage today, and John's talking about love a lot, but he gives some really important details. And the first thing you need to see here is that God is identified with only one of his attributes, and that's rare. It's rare in Scripture where somebody will speak of God with just one attribute mentioned, because we know that God is not just one thing. But here John says God is love. Notice What he's not saying, everybody say not out loud. Ready? One, two, three, not. I want to make sure you know these are nots or you're going to get the wrong message. It's not God is loving, but instead it's God is love. God is the definition of love. I guess when you look up the word love in the dictionary, God's picture should be there. This is what love is. It's God. God is love. And again, it's not that that's his only attribute. If you go that far and say it's his only attribute, then you forget justice. Our God is also a God of justice. And there will be a day when there's a judgment. Because he is a just God, sin must be paid for. But because he is a God that is love, he sent his son to die for us. So we take all of his attributes and know who God is. But in this passage, John is making a point. God is love. It's not that the emotion love is always God. Don't get this wrong. Don't, don't, don't leave here saying, well, love is always God. If I see love of any kind, then that's God. No, the emotion love, it's different. And we're not defining the emotion of love. We're talking about love in the term of God. His holiness, his rightness, his sacrifice for us. And it's not that love is God's only attribute, as I mentioned earlier. So God is love. Not that he's loving. He is loving, but it's that he is love. If God is in us, self-sacrificial love must be at the core of our being. Understand what John's trying to get at here. When he says God is love, we know that if we know him, he is in us. He lives in us. And if he is in us, then at the core of our being must be love. So that's where we're heading today. He goes on to the next part. After he says that God is love, he then tells us how God's love is on display. Let's look at 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. Not only does John tell us that God is love, and if he is in us, then we must be love. Then he tells us how God showed that love. He explains it. He 
he gives us a description of it. And it's more than a feeling. It's action defined by grace. And all of my great Boston friend, you, you got to be more than a feeling. Oh, I can't. Every time I read that, I got to sing that song. It, it's more than a feeling. And that's where we fall way short on the definition of love. If you don't understand God's definition of love, you, you've got a watered down version of, of love that's all based on emotion and feeling. But emotion and feelings change over time. This is a steadfast kind of love. This is a forever and unconditional kind of love that we're talking about here. And God showed that love, his action was defined by grace. God did the unthinkable. This morning, if you don't know if you're truly saved, if you don't know if you're a child of God, I've got good news for you. God's love is an offer that you can be saved. He sent his son. It was an action defined by grace. His son died for our sins. And I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. We can't just pass over this today. As I was thinking about it, so many things came to mind. God did the unthinkable. I always go back to the one of my favorite movies, Princess Bride. I just watched it last week because there's nothing else to do. So I watched Princess Bride. And the guy always says, inconceivable. He says that over and over again in the, in the movie. What God did was, it's inconceivable, it's unthinkable, it's unimaginable what God did to show his love for us. The creator chose compassion on his rebel creation. He created us and we turned on him, and yet he still showed compassion. The scorned king dying for unrepentant traitors. All these analogies are so true about God's love for us. It's a father forgiving an arrogant prodigal child. Over and over again in Scripture, we see these analogies pushed before us, and we understand that we are a rebel creation. We are unrepentant traitors to the kingdom, and we are a prodigal child prone to wander. He's also a betrayed lover, offering himself as a sacrifice for the unfaithful betrayer. Oh, I I could go on and on and talk about who God is and what his love tells us. But these, these really sum it up. It's a God of love. He is love. And it's not based on us earning it. Can you see who we really are? And can you see his love was freely given? Have you received that love by asking God to forgive your sins and come into your life as your Savior and Lord? Have you had that experience, that moment where you've done that? And you know for sure now that you're a child of God. His love is so hard to express. Even now I'm frustrated because I don't have the words to talk about it. But I'm not alone. Charles Spurgeon said this, The love of God makes me back from this platform utterly ashamed of my poor, feeble words. A great preacher trying to talk about God's love walked away frustrated like I'm sure I will today. It's so hard to put into words the love of God. Martin Luther said this, from this, talking about God's love, from this we see how truly dull our hearts are, that only a few of us taste even a few drops of this immense joy, not to mention the whole ocean of it. We are drowning in the ocean of God's love. Do you know it? Do you realize it today, what we have in Christ Jesus through the love of God? Well, John goes on. I I can't 
described it for you. So I'm just going to have to keep on going with what John gives us today. John goes on, 1 John 4, 11 through 12, and it talks about we ought to love. Let me read it. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Focus on the word we ought. Everybody say ought. One, two, three, ought. Don't pass over that little word today. This is huge. This right here is the Achilles heel of atheism and agnosticism and philosophical naturalism. This is what they cannot explain. Those that deny there is a God, those that would say we evolved from microbes, this is their fault when we talk about love. They cannot provide a philosophical basis, an oughtness for their morality or for love of any kind. Oh, friends, unbelievers would say love is a good thing, and many are more loving than some believers that I know, but they cannot tell us why love is right. They cannot give a reason why love is the right thing. If we evolve from microbes, then it's basically the survival of the fittest. That's what the world lives by. So why self-sacrifice? Why show grace at a great cost to self? It makes no sense. Some would say, uh, well, that's best for the species to love. Well, that's simply a fancy form of self-interest. I'm serving you because it's best for me. By logic, if it became better or more important for me to kill you, then if I'm strong enough, I should do that. You see, they have no basis for morality. We believe that because God is, and he's a creator of all things, then he puts himself in the heart of every man. That is why there is morality in this world. That is why we ought to love. That word ought is so huge there. John is saying we ought to. You should do this. You should do what's right, and what is right and good is love, because God is love. Any system that would deny there is a God has no moral basis. They might be good people and try to do good things, but there's no logic to it. Again, I've, I've told you that I've talked to anarchists before that tell me there's no such thing as God and nobody can tell me what's good and right. I, there is no such thing as absolute truth. And if you grab a two by four and hit them in the head, you're going to hear them cry. That's not right. You can't do that. Well, why not? Well, they know in their heart of hearts, that's not right. That's not loving. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from evolution of microbes. It comes from the fact that there is a God and he puts in the heart of every man his image. We are made in the image of God. We'll move on. I love that oughtness. And as believers, you can see what John is leading toward. If God is love and he is in us, we ought to love Created in the image of God, man can have moral impulses, but they do not know why love is good and right. We do, because we know that's who God is. And made in his image, we are children of God. If you've accepted him as your savior, therefore, it's what ought to come out of us. 1 John 4, 13 through 16, John moves on and he says these things. 
This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. I want to remind you, once again, we're not talking about the emotion of love because you would say, I know a lot of people that don't believe in God that love and do loving things. Of course, it's true. He's talking about the God love, an unselfish, a selflessness. Boy, as we go through this marriage series that Pastor Shane and Carrie are leading, there's four of them, and Paul Tripp has done a great job, and he really has boiled it down to the fact that at the core of our nature, we're sinful, selfish people. And that's going to be a problem for marriage. But I love what Paul Tripp said this week, and this is where this comes into this point, that we have the Spirit. You see, God, in His wisdom, knew that the core of ourself is selfishness. And and to get past that is amazing. Not only would He have to send His Son to die for our sins, but that wouldn't just change us. Just because we ought to be more like Him, because He did that for us, didn't mean it would happen. We're so deeply selfish. So God then unzipped us. I love how Paul Tripp used that analogy. He unzips us and he inserts his spirit in us. Implanted in us is God. And God is love. So we ought to love. And so we get to this point in what John is saying. Hey, you have his spirit in you. Well, how do we know that his spirit lives in us? Some people would use some weird tests there that uh, speaking in tongues or doing some wild things and that's the only way to prove the spirit in it that's not at all what john says that's not what john gets at see there is no spirit reader there's no spirit geiger counter that you can point at somebody oh the spirit is strong in this one no there's no way we know what the spirit is in anybody but john breaks it down and he tells us that the evidence The evidence is that you recognize the truth about Jesus and he is the son of God sent to be the savior of the world. And I know you might say, what are you, Pastor Don, are you really saying that you know you have the spirit of Christ if you believe in Jesus? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's what John is teaching. This is how you know that Jesus is the son of God because he gave you his spirit. Friends, you would not understand and believe in God if God hadn't done a work in you. God has given us his spirit, and that's how we can know. Imagine you're blind. You've been blind from birth, and you're in a room full of blind people who've also been blind from birth. None of you have ever met anybody who had sight. Matter of fact, you don't even know there is anything aware of sight. And then all of a sudden, you're given the gift of sight. And you're seeing colors and vividness. How can you explain it to the crowd? How in the world could you explain colors to somebody who's never seen or heard that there was such a thing as sight? It's impossible. You would feel hopeless. Your only hope would be that God would give them open eyes. And that's exactly what conversion is. Conversion is new eyes to see the beauties of God's grace. A new heart that senses your sinfulness and feels the weightiness of God's glory and grace. That's a gift from God that you would even see this. You've been given new eyes. Oh, if you're a believer today, thank God that he's given you new eyes to see. And what you see is his beauty, his love, his glory. 
What a beautiful, wonderful thing God has done for us. In Ephesians, we talk about this. Ephesians 3, 18 through 20. Is there a way we could put that on the side screen too? Because I could read it. I forgot to bring my sheet. I'm so sorry. Ephesians 3, 17 through 20. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is with the work within us. Oh, Ephesians tells us a beautiful thing. Ephesians tells us about the love of God. How can you know the love of God? Well, the Spirit has been given to you and he opens your eyes and you begin to see. And how does this author describe that deep love? One author, uh, I'll give you that in just a second. This author in Ephesians talks about the height. As high as the heavens above. David talks about how high the heavens are above. That's God's love. He talks about the length before the foundations of the world. He, he, he gives an illustration about the breadth of God's love. He commandeers all things for a purpose. Not only, not one stray molecule in this universe which does not shape toward his good ends. Oh, how high, how long, how broad, and then how deep. God saw all the messiness and sin and dysfunction in your life and he chose you anyway. Boy, I hope you understand that. The depth of God's love for you. Can you imagine being single? I just married two single people yesterday. I pronounced that they became man and wife. A brand new family appeared. My daughter asked me at the end as we were signing the the marriage certificate, what name do I sign? I almost wanted to say, weren't you paying attention? I now pronounced you man and wife. You are a holly. Wow. Can you imagine being single? and having to wear a warning label? Can you imagine that? What if you had to wear a warning label on your neck, around your neck, that said, moody, ferocious morning breath, snores, lazy, anger issues, and occasionally lies. Can you imagine having to wear that around your neck? Let me tell you, you would never get a date. No one goes on a date with unconditional love. By nature, dating is conditional. (laughs) Can you imagine having to wear a sign around your neck revealing all that's true about you? Would you feel hopeless and helpless? I bet you would. But you need to know the depth of God's love. He knew everything about you. He knows us. He knows every hair on our head. And yet he chose to love you. He is love. He knows every weird idiosyncrasy. He knows every fault and flaw. He knows every repetitive sin that we can't seem to shake. Yet he loves us. Like the father loves the prodigal child. Like the king forgives the traitors. Like the betrayed lover still loves his betrayer. He loves us. Richard Baxter said these words. 1 John 3, 1, you can look that up at another time. Another verse in 1 John. Richard Baxter said this, that love, say it with me, that love which brought the Son of God's love from heaven to earth, from earth to cross, from cross to grave, from the grave to glory. We just sang a song, I think that was written off that quote. 
That love, say it with me, that love which was weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, beaten, spat upon, crucified, pierced, that love, say it with me, that love which fasted, prayed, taught, healed, wept, sweated, bled, and died, that love, say it with me, that love will eternally embrace you. Oh, I don't know if you're getting what I'm getting at today. We have a God who loves us. And, and the way that Scripture tells us that He loves us is how high, how far, how deep, how wide. Paul Gardner's a good friend of mine at Camp Barakel, and he would get up at Chapel in the Woods and give this illustration. He said, to get to the edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way, traveling at the speed of light, which would take 100,000 years. Light travels at 186,282 miles per second, which is so fast that in time it takes to snap your fingers, light circumnavigates the globe a half a dozen times. Traveling at that speed, it would take you 100,000 years to get to the end of our galaxy. And astronomers believe that there are close to 80 billion galaxies in the universe, which amounts to more than 10 per person. By the way, most of which are bigger than our Milky Way. So if you don't think you'll have to worry about running out of things to do in heaven. To get to the edge of our universe, they say, if you were traveling at the speed of light, it would take you 15.5 billion years. And that's the analogy that God chooses to measure His love for you. That love. I'll give you two more tests and then we'll be close to being done. To wrap it up, what is John saying? First test, we know that we know God because we love one another. I'm going to take things out of order here and go to 1 John 4, kind of reorganize John's thoughts for him. John says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love God their brother and sister. First test, if you're a child of God, we love. If God is in us and He is love, it has to be at the core of our being. Test two, we know that we know God because God's love has driven out fear. Let me give you this. 1 John 4, 17 and 18, we have confidence You can have confidence. Do you have confidence in your salvation today? Do you have confidence that you're a child of God? John says in 1 John 4, 17 and 18, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. To test. We know that we know God because we love one another. And we know that we love, we know God because God's love has driven out fear. We have confidence. You see, when you believe the gospel, you have no guilt in life, no fear in death. From life's first cry to final breath, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power, oh, I would have written love there. Here in the love of Christ I stand. Oh, John did an amazing work here. He tells us that love, 
Love ought to come pouring out of us as children of God. Sacrifice, grace, mercy, love ought to just come out of us because we're kingdom people. Unzipped, inserted the Holy Spirit. There's no excuse for this. That's why John says, if you say that you're a believer and you do not love, you're a liar. Friends, I love the song we're going to sing. I asked Christopher to lead us in Christ alone because it's the story of this amazing love, inconceivable, the love of God for his children. Oh, friends, as we wrap up this whole series, do you know that you know him? More importantly, do you know that he knows you? Does God know you as his child? In Matthew 7, it tells us many people are going to show up and say, I said a prayer. Many people are going to show up at the judgment seat and say, I sang in choir. Many people are going to say, I I spoke in tongues or I did miracles in your name. Many people are going to claim to do many great things. The worst thing you could ever hear is depart from me. I never knew you. Does God know you? These tests are hopefully here so that you can have confidence because of who God is, not because of your failure. If we look at each one of these tests, you're going to have moments where you say, I failed the test. I don't feel connected with God. I don't feel very loving today. I struggle with sin. If we simply look at it as the test of whether we're capable, you'll fail every time. John is not telling you how to jump through hoops to be saved. He's simply saying, you look at the truth. Is God in you? Is the evidence that he's transforming you? Are you learning to be more patient? Are you learning to be loving? John says we are like Jesus in this world. Are you looking more like Jesus than you did a day ago? Are you looking more like Jesus than you did the year before you came to know him? He changes us. It's a new life. And when you see those things, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, against this thing, there is no law. Is the fruit bubbling up? Is it showing That's what John's simply saying. should show. There should be evidence. I pray that you would know Christ alone, the power of salvation, not your works, his power on the cross.